Well, we've uh, spent the last month or so preparing to move into this new year by having a discussion about legacy. And we have uh, talked about many various aspects of legacy and what we, uh, some things we need to be thinking about as we live our lives. God has given us this life to live. We get one shot at it. And uh, it's good for us to think about when we depart this life, what will we leave behind? What will be our experience at the judgment seat of Christ as we stand before God and our judge not for our sins, which Jesus has covered with his blood, but for the deeds done in the body that God is very much concerned. I think one of the problems uh, in modern Christianity, certainly in the American church, is that people have uh, been lulled to sleep by the enemy and convinced that God is not concerned about what you are doing as you await uh, the sky rolling back as a scroll and the return of the Lord. But he is very much concerned about that. And so through this time of talking about legacy, it's prepared us to uh, move into yet another discussion that will build upon that which we have just been talking about. And what I've come to realize as I've prayed for you over these last weeks is that uh, as we've talked about legacy, I realize that there's a great opportunity for many of you to be discouraged, to hear the things that God wants to do, to hear the things that God is able to do, but then to Uh, be convinced in your own mind and in your own flesh that God won't do them in you. That the reality is is that most people, most people will not live a life of significance. Most people will not accomplish the things that God has before them. Most people will come and live and die and be forgotten and not leave a legacy that the Lord was their God and that He worked mightily through them. And so really, the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, what is God's vision for my life? What is God's uh, plan and purpose for me? And am I accomplishing that plan and purpose? And God's been dealing with us as a fellowship through these Sunday morning sermons on legacy and also through the things he's been speaking to us on Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights. And they're all sort of weaving together to uh, just open my eyes to the reality of what God is wanting to say to us as a faith family. And so we're going to move into a study of the book of Nehemiah. So what you can do is open your Bible. Why don't you open your Bibles? Let's all open our Bibles to the table of contents. That'll be helpful because I want to show you something. Well, partially because I don't want you to flip for 10 minutes looking for Nehemiah, but I want to show you something because it's very important before we study Nehemiah, you need to know the, the context of Nehemiah. You need to understand the, what, how Nehemiah fits into the scope of the 66 books of Scripture. It's also important for you to understand that uh, we as a faith family are committed to uh, studying expositionally books of the Bible. And so we will spend time, as we did most of last year, studying through the book of Galatians. Then we will, uh, as God leads us, do other things, maybe for just a short time, but we will bring ourselves back to 
studying through books of the Bible. And here's the reason why we're committed to do that. It's because what you don't want is you don't want to uh, be led by a shepherd who picks and chooses the things that he decides to preach to you about. You see, by preaching through books of the Bible, I can't escape the things that God says. I have to deal with all of it. And that's important because God said it. And so even if uh, there are some weeks where uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, where I'm preaching through a book of the Bible and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm really stressed out. And uh, it's just, it's a very hard or difficult passage or whatever the case may be. And then uh, there's other weeks where things seem to resonate better with my heart. But that doesn't negate the fact that God said it and it's important and we want to hear it. And so you don't want to be in a place or under the instruction of someone who's just picking and choosing whatever he feels like talking about because that won't be good. Now you're in the table of contents. Now I want you to notice, let's look through the table of contents. I want you to see the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are books of the law. So the the books in your Bible are not uh, laid out chronologically, but they're grouped according to the type of literature that they are. And so Moses, the books of the law, the first five books. Then you move, beginning in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then first and second Samuel, Kings. And uh, that that's, begins the process of bringing us through history, all the way through Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So when we turn to the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to do is we're going to turn to a book of history. Now, what the way this fits in chronologically is you move from Esther into the books of poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Those are books of poetry and then books of the major prophets and then the minor prophets. But what I want you to understand is that by the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah chronologically, you're at the end of the history of the Old Testament. So basically we move from Nehemiah into 400 years of silence and then the New Testament comes. And then you have uh, the book of Matthew starts, the, the Gospels come, Jesus comes. So I want you to understand how that fits in to where we are, okay? And so now you can look and see what page Nehemiah is on and you can turn there. It's a historical book. Just for reference going forward for these next, it'll probably take us about 12 weeks to study this book, something like that. You can just open to the middle to the book of Psalms and then back up a couple books and you'll be in Nehemiah. Now, with regards to this book, as I was uh, preparing over the last couple weeks to uh, jump into this study, uh, some things stuck out to me. One commentator I read Uh, about Nehemiah says this, like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. That uh, we need to realize that Nehemiah is the story of an ordinary man. And there's a reason why I've called this uh, sea of faces. It's because oftentimes we feel like we're just a person that's in a sea of faces, that you're just... Uh, you're just there, but you're just lost in this crowd and, and that, you know, you're, you're a very little significance and that's very easy for you to maybe deflect off the things that uh, God might be speaking to you and think that that's for someone else. And I want you to realize that Nehemiah is the perfect illustration of an ordinary man 
who was going about the ordinary events of his life and God uh, intersected with him, but he was prepared and ready to respond to what God had for him. And so God, in a sense, Nehemiah is the story of a man that God plucked out of a sea of faces. And so I want you to know that it's going to be very instructive and, and very encouraging for you just as a, an individual to, for us to study through this and to see all the wonderful ways in which God uses Nehemiah to accomplish great things. You know, the Bible is from start to finish the story of this amazing God who uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And he intersects with them in the midst of really ordinary circumstances. I mean, Moses wakes up one day and he goes out to the fields just like he always has. And then he encounters God at the burning bush. David is out uh, tending to the flock just like any other day. And then he's called in. He walks up to the house and there's Samuel there waiting to anoint him as king. Did you ever think to yourself, what would if you to talk to David that morning... And you'd have said, David, you know, well, what do you got planned today? He would have said, well, I'm just going to go out in the field and tend the flock like I always do. He had no indication of what was going to happen. And yet that very day, he just was called into the house and there was Samuel. And the next thing he knows, he's anointed as king. I mean, if you think about the New Testament, you've got Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they're doing what they always do. They're out fishing. In fact, they've been fishing all night and they, they've had a horrible night of fishing. And so if you'd, if you'd have encountered them that day, they would have said, well, it's really been a bad day. I mean, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. But it was that day that they encountered Jesus and everything changed. And their, their lives and their names are forever burned in the consciousness of history through the uh, chronicles of Scripture. And yet, somehow we lose sight of that and we see them as these special people that maybe God uh, especially equipped to do these things, but they're just average, ordinary people just like you and me, just like us. And so maybe today God might intersect with some of you. He might intersect with your life. He might speak into your life in such a way and pluck you out of a sea of faces. Well, let's pray and ask God to bless the hearing and teaching of His Word. Father, we stand before Your Word, and God, we confess to You it's perfect and errant in every way. We thank You for it. We know that it's Your Word, and it's intended for us. It's meaningful and instructive. Father, I pray You give us ears to hear, that our hearts would be open to what You have to say to us today. Give us the courage to respond as we should, Lord. And we thank You in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this book takes place in about 435 B.C. So, you know, you, you, you're just a few decades away from uh, this 400 years of silence that leads into the coming of Christ. Uh, about 150 years before uh, Nehemiah 1.1 is when uh, Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar first, invades Judah and tramples over the uh the, the kingdom of Judah and uh, eventually destroys the temple of God. The, Solomon's temple gets leveled and flattened. And Nehemiah is an Israelite. He's a Hebrew and he's a slave. Now in Persia, under the because of Babylon ruled for 70 years, but then was eventually 
overthrown by the the Medes and the Persians, and now the Persians are in control. The king's name is Artaxerxes. And so you've got this man, Nehemiah, who is basically all he knows is slavery. He's never been to Jerusalem. He's never been to his homeland. Uh, his, the people of God have been exiled for so long. You know, he was born there, and he's grown up there, and that's all he knows. But he has this wonderful position as working for the king, which if you're going to be a slave... You would want the job of working for the king because you get to live in the palace. You get to eat of the king's food. And he is the the cupbearer, which does have its perils in a sense. What a cupbearer would do would would, uh, sample the king's wine before the king would drink it because the cupbearer was there to make sure it wasn't poisonous. So in other words, his job was to die uh, for the king. So he was kind of like the uh, guinea pig or the lab rat, if you will. They'd let him drink it, and then if he didn't die, they knew it was okay because that was the common way of killing the king, was putting poison in his drink. Let's begin reading Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. The Bible says it came to pass in the month of Chislev. So it's winter time. It's November, December. In the 20th year... As I was in Shushan, the citadel, and Hananiah, one of my brethren, came from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who were left from the captivity are in the province, are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, we'll just stop there for a moment. What I want you to see is that Nehemiah has just woken up and went to work like any other day, and he's there with the king. And uh, as he's going through the course of his day, he sees uh, one of his brethren. And so uh, they're probably from Judah, and so he uh, sees him and he asks him, how are things going in Jerusalem? And he gets the report that things are not going well at all, and that the, the, the people of God and the city of God are in ruins. And so now what I want us to do as we think about this and we move forward are we want to look at some evidences that we'll see from Nehemiah that God is working in his life. What would be some evidences of the fact that someone is, is, has God working in their life? The first one is this, that Nehemiah was concerned enough to ask. You see, the Bible says that Hananiah one of his brethren, in verse 2, came with men from Judah. Now, Nehemiah, he's got a good thing going. He's living in the palace. I mean, he's doing good. He doesn't, he, he's living the life. He doesn't uh, have a care in the world. He doesn't have to worry about anything. He's got wonderful food to eat. All of his needs are met. Life is easy. It's good. And yet he asks... He wants to know. He asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, meaning that when Persia first took over, uh, conquered Babylon, they were different from the way the Babylonians ruled. And so they allowed their captives to go back to their homeland, and they thought it would be good for them to practice their own religion as long as they were obedient and served the, the Persian rule. And so 
they started letting some of the Jews go back to Jerusalem. And so that's what Nehemiah is asking about. He's saying, what's the progress of some of our brothers who have been back to Jerusalem? Zerubbabel led the first group back and they started to try to rebuild the temple. Of course, they couldn't rebuild what was there, the, the, the temple of Solomon and all of its splendor. But they started putting the temple back together in a very uh, small or simpler way. But that's what he's asking about. But the thing that I want you to see is that he cared enough to ask. He was concerned about it. In other words, in the comfort and the, the, the ordinary scope of his life, he took time to say, hey, what's going on at home? You know, this whole entire book is filled with uh, answered prophecies and all sorts of uh, nuances from uh, the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15.5 is a place where Jeremiah is talking about the people of God going into exile due to their unwillingness to yield themselves to the Word of God and to do the things that God's called them to do. And notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah 15. God says, For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside and ask how you are doing? In other words, he's saying you're going to be in exile and people are going to be going about their lives. And who's the one who's going to care? Who's the one who's going to ask? Who's the one who's going to uh, take the time and wonder what it is that's going on with the people who have gone back to Jerusalem? I mean, Nehemiah, he wasn't born in Israel. He's 800 miles away from Jerusalem at this point. He's in Susa, the capital uh, city there of Persia where the king would go for the winter. And so this is a, a ridiculous distance away. It's so removed from where he is in the, the Artaxerxes palace to even be worried about what's going on so far away with ancestors you don't know in a place you've never been. But when God moves on your heart, you're just not content anymore to ignore the needs of those around you. That when God begins to move in a person's heart, you become sensitive to the fact that there are people who are in plight, who are in need, who are suffering, and you don't have to know them. You don't have to have ever been there or seen them yourself. Just the fact that they're suffering begins to grip you in a certain way because that's God's heart being illustrated in your own heart. And so Nehemiah has this this concern about, well, what's going on? But he doesn't just care enough to ask. The second thing he does is he cares enough to grieve. You see, we can see an evidence of God moving in his life by the way he responds. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, So it was when I heard these words, when I heard that they were doing bad, when I heard that the walls were broken down, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. In other words, Nehemiah has this deep and genuine grief that he's grieved over the things that grieved God. He knows that this is God's people and God's city and yet it's in ruins and things aren't the way that they ought to be, that they're supposed to be, that God is not being worshipped and honored the way He ought to be and that grieves His heart. And he realizes that the, that the Hebrew people are the the most blessed people on earth. Yes, they're in exile. Yes, things have not been going well for them. 
But that's because through the course of the, the kings, all of the kings and all the disobedience and how the people of God kept turning their back and turning their back and God kept telling them, if you continue to do this, this is what's going to happen. And so they find themselves in this terrible time, but they're still the most blessed people on earth. There's no other people on earth who could say that they've been led by God directly out of captivity, that they have walked across a, a sea on dry land, that they've been fed by God from, from the sky, that they have followed Him by a pillar and by a, a fire and a cloud by night, that God has done the amazing things that God has done, that they know that they're God's people and they know that God is their God. And, and yet things are amiss. They're wrong. They're not the way they ought to be. Does that sound in any way familiar to you? Does it resonate in any way with your heart? Because it sounds a lot like the United States of America today to me. We have been blessed in ways that the rest of the world can only dream about. We experience on a daily basis freedoms that no other Christians in the history of the world have ever experienced. We have been blessed financially in ways that no other nation. We have resources that no one has ever in the history of the world had at their disposal. No one could ever dispute the reality and the fact that we have been an incredibly blessed people by God. And yet, what is the situation we find ourselves in this day? We're not in exile yet, but we're certainly on the way out, it would appear, if things don't drastically change and change Soon, the walls of most churches in the United States are broken down. They're in great distress and reproach. You know, uh, the Bible says that they're in trouble and they're in shame. That's what those two words mean. I think that the church today is in trouble. It's in shame. That biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. Apathy amongst those who claim the name of Christ and worldliness are the dominant attitudes among Christians today. As we look around the landscape of our land, what we find is that people, oh yes, they read the Bible, but they read the Bible when they feel like it. They pray when they want something. They come to church if it's convenient and not painful, if it meets their needs, if it soothes their flesh. In essence, what's happened today is we've created a form of Christianity that is exempt of all sacrifice. You know, last Sunday night, as I was standing in this very place right here, preaching, about halfway through the sermon, you know, uh, it's not uncommon for, uh, for me to be preaching, especially, you know, I know that uh, I, I am very in tune to the fact that when God's moving and sense the Spirit of God around, but uh, I'd noticed that a couple people in the congregation had begun weeping and I could see tissues moving about. And as time sort of progressed, 
a few more people started weeping. And by the time I got about halfway through the sermon, uh, it was hard for me not to be distracted by the weeping that was going on in the room. The Spirit of God was moving in this place in such a way that it was just so visible that God was here and that He was ministering and that He was that, that we were having an encounter with God. But most of you wouldn't know that because you weren't here. I'm sure there was a good ball game on. I'm sure there was shopping to do and chores to take care of. And I hope that was very profitable for you. And I want you to know that the experience that we had last Sunday night in this very room was, was one I wouldn't trade for anything. But you weren't here. Because you had better things to do. You see, that's the state of where we've gotten. If you finally get to the point where you feel like you can't endure the directness, the depth and the gravity of the sermons that I preach, then you can find another church to go to. And when you find that other church, I can pretty much guarantee you that uh, it will probably have one, maybe Two services a week. Most churches now don't even have Sunday nights anymore. And Wednesday night's just a formality. But if it's me and three of you, we're going to do what God calls us to do to the bitter end. To the bitter end. Because I want God to move in my life. I want to be where He is. I want to be a part of what He's doing. You see, the situation that Nehemiah is grieving over is that some of the Jews have have returned to Jerusalem. There's already been several waves. Ezra is already there as well. It's already gone back, the prophet Ezra. But they haven't gotten anything going. You know, they sort of piecemealed the temple together, but there's not, worship's not happening. That the people of God aren't living like the people of God. That the the walls are still in ruin. But it's not just that the walls are in ruin. It's that the walls are symbolic of the fact that they're not sold out to God. It's a form of religion, but it's not what it ought to be. And he's grieved because he knows that that's not right. He knows that they're not following the covenants of Scripture. He knows that they're not sacrificing and caring and loving for one another. He knows that they're not working together and cooperating to accomplish the purposes of God on earth. You see, they had come to accept this hybrid form of following God that existed in mediocrity. That is the church of today. That people just want a form of religion. They want some, some hint. But they don't want what the Bible has to say. You see, the, the, the people of God weren't sold out to God in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knew that. And yet they're the most blessed people on earth. And I look around at the landscape of today and I think, We're the most blessed people on earth. 
But we have better things to do than to serve God. And so what churches do is they just keep bending over backwards to, to, to make, to make religion less confrontational, to make it easier, to take as much of the burden away from it as possible so you can just, just ease on in the door and out the door without ever having to deal with anything difficult or face anything real. I just don't have any interest in that. The reason why I love this church so much is because so many of you don't have any interest in that. And I just want you to realize that in this day and time, people come to church, check a box, drop a few bucks in the offering plate, Unless something bad happens, they're not going to get serious. And even then, they only get serious until the storm passes and then they go right back to the way it was. And I open my Bible and I sit and read and I see a God who invites us into this deep, soul-satisfying relationship with Him. You see, what really breaks my heart is not that so many of you want a casual Christianity, Sunday morning Christianity, exempt from connecting yourself in small groups, exempt from coming to church on Sunday nights, exempt from any activities on Wednesday nights. You see, what bothers me the most is not that you weren't here last Sunday night. What bothers me the most is that you thought watching a football game or going shopping or doing whatever you were doing was better than being with God. That's what breaks my heart. I don't want anybody here who doesn't want to be here. But I just don't understand how God invites us to experience life abundantly, that He has ushered us into a relationship with Him where we can on a moment-by-moment basis abide in the limitless love that He has made available to us. I mean, what can possibly compete with that? Nothing. It would seem. But I must be wrong. Because something's competing with it. And winning in some of your lives. You see, Nehemiah is grieved, not because of, it's not his agenda. Nehemiah is not saying, you know, I think things ought to be this way, and this is the way they ought to be, and this is why. That's not what's going on here. Nehemiah is grieved because he's grieved by the things that grieve the heart of God. That the evidence that, that God is moving and working in your life is that you are grieved by what grieves God. Not that you want things to be the way you think they ought to be, but you ask the question, what does God want? And whatever God wants, if it's not that way, it should break your heart. Because you, as a follower of God, as a child of God, should have the heart of God. And if you have the heart of God, then you have the priorities of God. And then your heart is grieved by the things that grieve Him. Now, listen, last Sunday morning we celebrated the fact that you as a faith family have, have done things that are truly remarkable. 
with regards to your support and love for the gospel going forth to all nations. But, you know, before we just pat ourselves on the back and take a vacation, there's still 180 million people that do not have the Bible translated into their language, meaning they have no access to the gospel. Now, here's my question to you. Does that grieve the heart of God? Then it ought to grieve you. You ought to be grief-stricken that there's 180 million people that don't have the Bible. Some of you in this room ought to, your heart ought to be responding with that reality right now. You ought to be thinking, what can I do to make a difference in that arena of the, the situation in the world right now? How can I be a part of changing that? Because it grieves the heart of God. Instead of being worried about where you're going to take your next vacation or what's the current balance of your 401k or whatever else the situation may be. What does God want? There's 200 million orphans on the planet Earth right now. That doesn't include all of the children that have been uh, sold and sex trafficked because we don't have the count of them because it's too hard to, to know where they are and what's going on. But there's 200 million known, over 200 million known orphans. Let me tell you something, that grieves the heart of God. It ought to grieve your heart. In other words, you ought to say to yourself, hey, I maybe can't do anything about all of that, but I can be a foster parent. I can, I can, I have a room in my house and I can, I can start, uh, sheltering and harboring and ministering and loving kids that, that need to be loved. I can, I can make a difference in some way. I can work in, in some arena that, that ministers to orphans and make a difference. It grieves the heart of God. And if it just goes in one ear and out the other, then the problem's not with God. The problem's with your heart. When God puts a burden on your heart, do you run from it? Do you hate these kinds of sermons? Do you just wish I'd just shut up and stop saying these things because it's just too hard to hear? Or embrace it. Embrace the reality that God has not called us to ease and to leisure. He's called us to follow Him. And we see in Nehemiah a person who's got every evidence that God is working in his life because he he cares enough to ask. He cares enough to grieve. When was the last time that you grieved over something that your grief, it didn't affect you? You weren't grieving because you lost something you love or because you were inconvenienced or hurt in some way, but you were grieved because something isn't the way that God wants it to be. And it just broke your heart. Well, thirdly, we see that Nehemiah evidences God working in his life because he was convicted enough to pray. See, in verse 4, The Bible says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He immediately responded from this grief in prayer. Prayer is the language of dependence. Prayer is the, the, the explosion of our pride. Prayer is the, the conduit to the reality that we cannot accomplish anything apart from God. 
You see, we must do more than pray and pray only, but we shouldn't do anything until we pray. pray. Prayer is the precursor to whatever action God's calling us to take. That you can't leap over prayer. You can't, you can't go around prayer. You can't just start running off ruckshot doing this and that without prayer because prayer establishes the rightness of our heart. See, because a lot of times we want to do things because we think they're wrong and we think they ought to be this way and we think we have a lot of opinions. But what we don't, that's not responding to God's heart. That's responding to your heart. What does God want? The only way you're going to know what God wants is you're going to have to pray about it. Because God's ways aren't our, aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. It's not going to always make sense to you. So that's why we pray. Now, now notice we get all of this insight into his prayer. And it teaches us about how to pray. The first thing Nehemiah teaches us is, is it, that prayer, it begins with, it's motivated by, it's, it's fueled by the, uh, the greatness of God. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. You see, Nehemiah understands that the God of the Bible is this amazing, awesome, great God. I mean, if you're going to accomplish a great work, if you're going to, if you're going to leave a great legacy, you're going to need a great God. I mean, unless you're under some delusion that you in and of yourself are great, which That's a sermon for another day, but you're not. You're going to need a great God. And God does great things with people who know He's great. Why? Because the greatness of God is the fuel of faith. You see, the the greater the intensity, the higher the level that you understand the greatness of God, the greater your faith in God is going to be. You see, with every day, if you think to yourself, God, today, will you help me? Help me to see yet another way that you're great today. Whenever I read the Bible, I'm forever just, probably every single time I ever sit before God's Word, I'm amazed at how great He is. You see, and that fuels my faith, is that the greatness of God makes me more and more and more faithful. Because as I believe and see how great He really is, then I also realize that when He calls me to do something that seems impossible or unlikely, or but He's so great that I know He can do that, then I begin to believe and know that He can do that. You see, those two, they, they work against each other. They work parallel and probably the biggest reason that people are content to sit in mediocrity is that they don't see God as the great God that He is. Just see God as this disconnected deity that you believe in and has things to say. But, you know, I mean, I believe in a lot of things that aren't great. I believe in things I don't understand, I don't know. But I mean, what do I have faith in? I don't have faith in those things. I have faith in God. Begins with the greatness of God. Notice what the greatness of God does. It immediately turns to the sinfulness of man. Look at the next verse, verse 6. 
So after he says how great and awesome God is, he says, then please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned and we have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. It's interesting to me that as Nehemiah expresses how great and awesome God is, he immediately responds with his own sin and the legacy that his father and grandfather have left him. You see, he's responding of the fact that he says, my, my, my fathers and me, we've, we've turned our backs on you. We haven't done as we should. Which should be our response as we realize how great and awesome God is. The only response we can add to that is, my goodness, what a failure I am. I mean, well, how have I managed to, to make such a mess of this and to do such a poor job? God is so great and so amazing and so mighty. And, and yet in my humanity and my frailty, I just seem unable. I, I try and I fail and I try and I fail. You see, what you're seeing in Nehemiah is a, a, a picture of true repentance. It begins with our offense, which is not against people. It's against God. That, that our sin is against God. Sin is, is working in contradiction to the holy character and nature of God. That's what sin is. And so, yes, sin affects people. And we're all affected by the shrapnel of each other's sin. But when you sin, rest assured, you primarily sin against God. That the only reason why something is a sin is because it's against the, the character and nature of God. It's not because if, if you sin against me, it's not because I have perfect character and nature. It's because God said that's wrong. And you see, the, the greatness of God leads him to the sinfulness of man, which leads him to the repentance, to realizing, my goodness, if God is this great, if He's this sovereign, if He's this amazing then how, how have I managed to mess this up so good? How have I managed to, to be unfaithful these years? I don't know how old Nehemiah is when he prays this prayer. But you have to understand, this is a, a, a new, the beginning of a brand new season of his life. I mean, it's not like Nehemiah was this amazing, upstanding, super faithful, religious man. I mean, to what degree could he be a servant of the Lord Most High. He works in the palace of the Persian king. But you know what he does? He realizes what a mess he's made of his life. And so he goes from there to the promise of redemption, which is exactly what we ought to do. You see, because look at what he says. He says, remember, I pray the word that you commanded. See, about the time you start realizing how much of a, a a failure you are, how many things that you ought to do that you don't do, and how far short you fall, then about that time you realize, wait a minute, God is great, but so is His 
promises. So is His character that He has promised redemption. And so He says, remember the Word. The Word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But... But, verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, Nehemiah prays, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Listen, the people are still in exile. The city is still broken down. And yet Nehemiah knows enough to know, but God has redeemed us. He's chosen us. He's, he picked us up. He, he picked us from all the people in the world and set us apart for his good pleasure. Just like you this morning. Don't you understand that if you just sink down into the mire of all the areas and ways in which you failed and you just stay there, then you miss the most important part of this entire prayer. And that is the God that we serve has promised redemption. I mean, if you don't know God this morning, if you came into this service and you're utterly lost and separated from God, and for whatever reason you have just rejected that, you're, you're, you're fearful of, of making that commitment, there's things about it you don't understand, at the end of the day, understand something. You can be saved today. Today. That God has promised that whosoever will come to Him with repentance and faith, He'll grant salvation. And that if you're His child, you've been redeemed. Though you may have drifted into exile, maybe you feel like you're a thousand, maybe 800 miles away from where you ought to be. Maybe things have have just happened in your life and the consequences of poor decisions in your past have sort of swirled around you and maybe begin to convince you that it's just the way it is that it could never change. Well, I want you to take note of what Nehemiah does. He prays and he begins to quote what God has promised from the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. He begins to sort of remind God, if you will, God, here's who you've said you are. Here's what you've said that you would do. And you have redeemed us by your great power and by your strong hand. And Nehemiah, as he prays this prayer, could never in a billion years have imagined what it would be like to sit here today in this nation, in this place, in this exact moment in time, knowing what you know and having experienced what you and I have experienced. Nehemiah could never have dreamt when he prays this prayer of redemption. Do you think he could have imagined that the Son of God would come and walk on this earth in human form and hang naked and beaten and bloodied on a cross that you would know that you know that you know forever and ever and ever that you are His, that all of your sin is forgiven, that your your relationship with Him is not born on on performance or what you do. He couldn't have imagined that. And yet he prays this amazing prayer. But how much more should our hearts connect with what Nehemiah says? The reality that we sit here as New Testament, New Covenant believers. That the Bible, that was 1,500 years away from 
being written from when Nehemiah prayed this, would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 about the Lord Jesus that His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world. That you have been redeemed. That the Redeemer has made plain and simple to you. That you have received everything in Jesus that pertains to life and godliness. Every need that you have has been met in Christ. This morning, we sit in the reality of that promise. I mean, just on a very simple level. I mean, we say things like, God has a plan for your life. Well, does He? Does God actually have a plan for your life? Or is it up to you to just sort of, you know, make it happen? How do you know He has a plan for your life? Just because you've heard that said? Or has God said in His Word that He has a plan for your life? Does it say specifically in Psalm 139? where the Bible says you were fearfully and wonderfully made, where the Bible says that God knit you together in your mother's womb. The Bible says of the Lord that His eyes saw your substance being yet unformed, that in the, in the womb as you were being put together, that in His book they were written. What was written? The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. That God, when He puts you together, He he has a vision for your life. He has things for you to accomplish. He has things. You matter. And you may feel like you're just a, a, a face in the crowd, that you're just someone out there in some sea of faces, just in some oblivion, just meaningless existence, going through the motions. But that's not how God sees you. That's how maybe you see you, but that's not how God sees you. That's not the truth of what God says about you. That if you're here and breathing His air, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that you are His workmanship. That you've been created in Christ Jesus specifically for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. How many people walk in those ways? How many people will stand before God empty-handed, fully aware that right there in Scripture in Ephesians 2.10 it says He prepared that for me and stand before God and instead of instead of the good works that He has prepared for you, instead of walking in the way that, that you should go, you spend all your time just doing what you wanted to do, just wasting away. I mean, while God's speaking, what were you doing last Sunday night? How life-changing was that? I hope it was worth it. See, Nehemiah, he realized that God's got a plan for our lives. 
And what you and me need to realize is that God's got a plan for our lives as well. And that we can't go where God wants us to go if we stay where we are. You're not going to go where God wants you to go if you just stay put. Which brings me to my final point. The fourth evidence that God was working in Nehemiah's life is that he was committed enough to get involved. You see, after he asked and after he grieved and after he prayed, then look at verse 11. Oh, Lord, I pray. Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who who is this man? The king, King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah realizes that God is sovereignly orchestrating the events of his life. And then instead of saying, well, who am I? I'm just some slave to the king. I'm just stuck in this palace. What can I do about something that's 800 miles away? Nehemiah realizes that nothing's too hard for God and that God has him in a special place because God's going to do something in that place. And that he may not understand that or know that. And so he just prays, God, involve me in the process. put Put me in a favorable light before the king. And then he just ends and says, for I was the king's cupbearer. In other words, I was just Nehemiah, the nobody. But this is the day that everything changed. This is the day that God plucked me from a sea of faces and put me on a path to start accomplishing the things that God had for me. When was the last time that you were broken over something that you you were just broken by sin that you just wept over that sin that the reality that things are not as God would have them to be even though for you it may be comfortable and nice and good but they're not as God would have them to be, that things are not right, that people are dying every day and going to hell, and it just broke your heart. Listen, our walls are broken down. Make no mistake about it this morning. Our walls are broken down. Now, we come in here, and we dress up, and we fix up, and we pretend that everything's okay, but... Our walls are broken down. Broken down. Some of you look so wonderful. But your marriage is hanging by a thread. You've gotten yourself into an ethical or moral disaster at work. You know that your kids are a ticking time bomb. You're not what you present yourself to be. But rather than, than openly and honestly before the Lord confess and face the reality of the situation and plead with Him to and allow you to be a part of what He's wanting to do. No, I'm not doing that because I don't want anybody to know. I don't want people to think poorly of me. I wouldn't want anybody to see me weeping at the altar and start wondering why was I crying or what was wrong. You know, last Sunday night, I didn't ask one single person why they were crying. 
What would be the point of that? I know why they were crying. Because God was on them. That's why they were crying. It's not for me to worry about or no. I'm just glad that God was there and on them. I'm just glad that they were a part of that and that, that I got to be a part of what God is doing. As long as we hide behind the facade of our image or appearance, I mean, it would have been so easy for Nehemiah, so easy to just hear Hannah and I say all the horrible things that are going on and just say, well, that's a shame, man. I'm going to pray about it and go right back to his little job doing his little cup-bearing gig in the palace and be done with it. I wonder how many people There's millions of people, millions of people alive in Israel when Nebuchadnezzar comes with the Babylonian army. And yet, apart from four young men, a few prophets, and five or six people were introduced to in Nehemiah, the rest of them are... They're just gone. You think about how many people just, how many people knew the condition of the city and just turned the other way. Why is it so rare? Take a deep breath. I'm just about done. Why is it so rare? Because the pattern of Christianity is a constant call by God to His people to leave their comfort zone. And if you're honest with yourself today that the vast majority of American Christians, that's the one thing we don't want to do. Henry Blackaby calls this the crisis of belief. It's this moment where we have to decide whether we're going to trust God or we're going to go our own way and follow our own plan. I thought back this week. I just sat at my desk and sort of sketched out my journey and all the forks in the road that I faced and where I had crisis of belief and where I looked and I said, God, this doesn't make any sense what you're calling me to do. This has got to be the craziest thing in the world, but I trust you. I trust you. See, God's calling you out of your comfort zone. He's calling you to wake up every day and say, God, here I am reporting for duty. What do you have for me? What's God's vision for your life? He wants you to see things the way He wants them to be. He wants you to know that every time you meet somebody that He loves that person. He wants you to know that the people you hate, He loves He wants you to know that the things that you don't want to think about are important to Him. He wants you to know 
that every little decision that you make of what to do with your time and what to do with your resources and what to make your priorities, they matter to Him. He wants you to know that. And what I know sounds so foreign to so many ears right now is that, believe it or not, that is the pathway to abundant living. It sounds to the, to the human mind like the most horrible thing in the world, and yet it's the most amazing and wonderful journey a person can ever embark on. That somehow, in God's economy, He would touch your life in such a way that you'd ask Him, you'd say, God... I want you to use me. And I know in advance that using me is going to move me out of my comfort zone. But I want you to move, I want you to use me more than anything else. And so if it's, if, if you got to move me to do that, then that's fine. I just want you to use me. I don't want to squander this life. That you'd literally ask God to break your heart over something that breaks his heart. Say, God, break my heart. Break my heart over something that breaks your heart. Will you ask God? Will you ask Him? God, will you do something great in my life? I want to I wanna walk in the way that you've laid out for me. And I don't know what that is. But I know it's not spending all my time making myself comfortable. When was the last time that your heart was broken? Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we are grateful that even when it's hard, even when it stings, that it can.